Hey, for those of you that I haven't got a chance to meet yet, my name's Cody Wason, and I'm the lead pastor here at Antioch, and I just want to echo what Murray said, and just thank you guys for being here. Our heart is that we would be a, a church that loves Jesus, love, loves each other, loves our city, that we would see not only our lives, but the city transformed by the love of Jesus. And so when we come here on Sundays, that's our goal, is to, to celebrate Jesus, to honor Him, to worship Him, and to try to learn how to live like Him. And so uh, I don't know of a better way to do that than to just go to Scripture and look at the life of Jesus and, and see what we can learn about who He was and how He operated and how can we operate and love people uh, like Jesus and love Jesus more ourselves. So we're going to be looking at uh, a story here um, from the life of Jesus. And just so you know, uh, we'll be finishing up this series next week uh, and then launching into a new series in the fall. I hope you join us. It's going to be incredible. And we are so excited. Anyone else? Like, I know we all have to kind of like summer. It's kind of like built into the ethos of being a human. Like you have to enjoy summer. But does anyone else like really ready for fall? Praise God. Foot, did I hear foot, football? Yeah, let's go. All right. <laughs> um, I just, I love summer. I think, I, okay, I think I just lied. I like summer, <laughs> but my, I was not built for the heat. I don't know how I survived in Texas for nine years. I, uh, and now that I have two little kids, I love school. God bless school. <laughs> Go to school. Okay. Hey, so tonight, before we jump into the text and the passage, I want to talk about distractions uh, and what can distract us. Now, I know the low-hanging fruit here, if you're like, okay, I've heard this message before. The low-hanging fruit is to talk about how easily we're distracted by our phones. Some of you are on them right now. Uh, someone just took a picture of me. I'll take it. Uh, but uh, we can be distracted by apps and, and, and social media and all that. I'm not, I'm not going to spend tonight railing against time management. Y'all, we all just need to learn how to manage our time. And social media, it can work for you. It can not work for you. Apps and games. But, 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 but that's like the, the easy go-to is just to try to make us all feel bad about living in 2019 and having uh, smartphones and, and living in this world. And that's not where I'm going to go tonight. But I think for most of us, when we come to church the message we often hear is about, hey, let's talk about sin and how sin distracts. Let's talk about sin and, and how it distracts us from Jesus and it distracts us from his mission. It distracts us from living the way we're, we're called to live. And as a pastor, I can fully get behind that message. But I think oftentimes that message can get told over and over and over again. Don't do that. Don't touch that. Don't watch that. Don't think that. Don't whatever. Because that's, that's sin, and sin separates us, and sin distracts us. When oftentimes, I think if we're honest, most of us in the room can get distracted by good things. I want to tell a little story. So, um, people are laughing. They know I like to tell stories. Uh, maybe they're laughing at the fact that I said little, but we'll try to keep it as short as possible. So, growing up... Uh, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, and um, here we go. And um, my family developed a tradition over time, and it was around the holidays, and it was that every, uh, right around, I don't remember exactly, I want to say Christmas Eve, but um, right around Christmas Eve somewhere, my family would find the time to go on a special family dinner, something we didn't do uh, throughout the year. It would be like nice and fancy, we would just 
we, we would spend money, you know, eight-year-old Cody would just drop down uh, the money, and we would have this great meal, and it was amazing. It was part of our holiday tradition, and I looked forward to it. As winter came, it was like, I cannot wait for that dinner. That dinner took place at a place, a magical place, called Red Lobster. <laughs> now, I have been quite upfront with my love for Chili's on this stage. In fact, I've taken my daughter Eleanor on two dates to Chili's. She's a huge fan, by the way. Uh, so I, I am secure in everything when it comes to food. So, um, but Red Lobster, every year, it was like, like we didn't get that. That wasn't a normal place that we went. We had to drive 45 minutes to Red Lobster. I mean, I'm telling you, in the snow, in the blizzards of a Chicago winter, and we're like, we will get to Red Lobster. Nothing will keep us from those Cheddar Bay biscuits. And I remember growing up, our family has a love for seafood. So it was just all the different ways that Red Lobster figured out how to cook shrimp. And it was amazing. And it was incredible. I loved it. So fast forward to just out of college. Or maybe right at the end of college. And I have my first experience at a five-star restaurant. I go to a steakhouse in fact, it was the steakhouse where I fell in love with my wife. Wow, I just connected that. Hey, okay. And um, I remember sitting down, and, 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 uh, and the, the menus come out, and I'm like, wait, there's no crayons. <laughs> it's, this is not like sea-themed, like the restaurant doesn't have like, you know, buoys on the wall. And, and then the menu comes, and I go, you know, steak and lobster, that's my thing. That's like, ask my wife whenever, I, this annoys her to no end. But multiple times a week, she will ask me what I want for dinner. And I will reply, steak and lobster. And I, so I have this, this, this love for it. So I remember eating it at the first time, for the first time at this five-star restaurant and realizing the error of my ways. I tasted like seafood f- for the first time. And a steak that was like the size of like a golf ball, and it changed my world. And I, I realized... I had, I, had, I had thought I had the best. Red Lobster, my whole life was like fine dining, steak and lobster, Red Lobster, I'm in. And then I experienced something better. Okay, so here's where we take the curve back to the Bible. Because I think the reality is I, without even knowing it, I had been distracted by something that I would consider good, Red Lobster. And it had kept me from knowing the best. And I think if we're honest, a lot of us in all sorts of different areas of our life, but in our relationship with Jesus, good can distract us from the best, and we miss out. So let's look at a story about distraction in Jesus. If you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 10. If you do not have your Bible, that's okay. You can follow along on the, oh, down the screen. There it is. We're going to be, we're going to start in verse 38. So I am on the wrong page. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, 
which will not be taken away from her. Okay, so how many of you are familiar with Mary and Martha? Okay. Hey, we're going to try and dig in a little bit deeper because on the surface, it's real easy to just like, Martha's a loser. She's distracted. She's cleaning while Jesus is in the other room. And let's all be Mary's. Right? And, and, uh, and I think a lot of times you read that passage, and you're like, yeah, I've heard this. I know it. I know the, the point of the story. But I, I don't think many of us stop and really fully engage it and read it again and again and again and start to realize what's happening here. Because what's happening here is I think Martha is putting on display a lot of what's going on in our heart and our mind most of the time. So uh, a little context. Earlier in chapter 10, uh, Jesus has sent out 72 disciples to go before him and to preach the gospel and to see signs and wonders done. Uh, And he sends them into cities that he's going to come later and and proclaim the gospel. And right before this, the 72 have come back to Jesus and they're telling stories. They're like, it's nuts. Everything you said is true. Like we have power over our spirits and people are getting set free and and they bow to your name. And, and, And the 72 are like on cloud nine. They're like, this stuff really works. Like the kingdom works. Jesus is legit. And, and they come back, and Jesus begins to teach them. He starts to talk to them in, in parables. And then the next thing you know, Luke 10, 38 shows up. So contextually, it, it's not a stretch at all to think that when we picture Mary and Martha and Jesus in this scene playing out in our minds, I think we have it wrong. Picture yourself, you're Martha, and Jesus, and let's just cut it in half, just for fun. Jesus and 35 of his disciples show up at your door, and they want a place to stay. They want a a place to sit and rest. They've been on the road. They want a meal. Anyone been to the Middle East before? Anyone ever experienced their hospitality? It is unreal. If for no other reason, go there to be invited into one of their homes. It's amazing. So Martha is just doing what she, she knows to do culturally. When, someone, when a teacher, a prophet, a, a wise man comes to the door and says, hey, can I have a break on your couch? Do you have anything to eat? I'm thirsty from my travels. She, she has no other recourse other than to say, absolutely. So now in the scene, don't picture Mary and Jesus like one-on-one in the living room, like learning all about. It's like there's like 40 plus people packed into this house. And Martha, uh, anyone, anyone like a hospitality person, anyone a planner, anyone like, like to have details, anyone like to raise their hand like this? All right. There we go. Just help me out a little bit. All right. I love y'all, but it was a lot of this. And I don't know if I'm making my point correctly. With, uh, so, so Martha is doing what she's been trained to do. She's doing what you and I would do. She's like, I got to make sure the bathroom's clean. That would be my first job. Kate would be like, Cody, go clean the bathroom. And then she was cooking food, make, uh, getting water, taking trips to the well, getting, you know, sweeping up. Like, this was not an expected moment. And so Martha is doing a good thing. She's welcomed Jesus into her home. And now she's trying to make his experience the best she can. She's trying to make sure he's fed. She's trying to make sure he's got water. She's trying to make sure the house is clean to respect him and to honor him. She's doing a good thing for a good reason, and she's still missing Jesus. 
And I think that's what, when I was reading this passage, it just, it just struck me. I'm, I don't want to talk about how I get distracted with games on my phone and miss out on, on Jesus and the world around me. I want to talk about how I can get so distracted by good things for good reasons and miss out on the one thing. Jesus says the one thing, and we're going we're gonna to unpack that in a few minutes. But even in the very beginning, as we just unpack this story, Martha is illustrating what most of us in our flesh and our human nature, we can get so caught up trying to impress Jesus, trying to do things for him. Hey, I, come, I go to church every week. I do the right, I dress right. I, I try to go to life group. I'm trying to figure out this discipleship thing. It's confusing. I don't know what it means. I don't know how to do it, but I'm trying. And, I, and I've stopped being a jerk on Facebook. And I'm, trying to do, and I'm trying to do the things that would make Jesus happy. And I'm trying to do what I've been told to do my whole life. Go to church on Sunday. Don't say cuss words. Yes, yes, please, and thank you. All the things. And, and, we, and then we wonder as we get older, how, we, how we're like, my life, I feel like I need Jesus. I feel like I've been working for him for like a couple decades, and I, I don't know him because I've been too distracted doing things for him. And, and, I, and, and as we launch into the fall, as we launch into the new year, for me, this is like launching into the new year. I still operate. Does anyone else operate that way? Like, I know if you're in school, like you are definitely operating that way. But I've always operated like as we launch into the fall and there's just a new season new life, new, new things happening. I think there's new life in the church. I think there's new life in what God's doing in us as a church family. There's for sure new life, if you didn't know it, in what God's doing in the valley. So getting to talk to other churches, there's something new. And as I look towards the next season of life for me personally, for our family, and for our church, we've got to make sure, this is like the most simple message, but we have to make sure that we don't get caught in performing and just doing things for Jesus, and we miss out on knowing Him. Because doing things for Him won't set us free. It won't transform us. It won't bring revival. It won't break the chains. Doing things for Him won't bring the freedom that you're desperately asking for. And desperately, I mean, you're praying, and you're God, I just want to get out of this addiction. I want to get out of this sin cycle. I want to get, I want, there's, I know there's more for me. I know there's more, and I just want to get out. If we're, if our mindset is, if I just go to church enough, if I just go to life group enough, if I become a life group leader, maybe then, if I do all the right things, maybe then I'll see some transformation. It's not going to happen. Revival won't happen doing things for God. We've got to know him, like actually know him. Okay, let's keep going. Let's look at what happens with Martha's distraction. I think there'd be, to, to me, again, I'm just reading scripture and trying to uh, uh, just say, okay, Lord, take me into it, what's happening. If Jesus is in the other room with 40 people, again, that's, you know, people are going to like email me later, how do you know it's 40? I don't, Okay. So, whatever number you choose, <laughs> probably keep it below 72. That would be biblical. Okay. So, he's in there with a group of people. Mary, we know, is sitting at his feet. So, I, I think she's probably sitting at his feet because he's talking. He's probably teaching. He's probably speaking some parable. We don't know what he's saying, but he's, he's teaching. He's preaching. He's loving. He's talking, and people are in there. The level of devotion required by Martha to stay devoted to her service 
is pretty impressive. Like, the, the, the fame of Jesus is renowned at this point. This is not a stranger that she's like, I wonder who that guy is. She's like, that's Jesus. That's the, that's the one they call Messiah. That's the one who's performing signs and wonders. And his name's been being circulated amongst the towns and, and the region. And, and, and he's in the other room. And somehow, she's so devoted to her serving that she remains in it and doesn't go into the room. There's a level of devotion. Here's what I, want to, what I felt like God's warned me with. That whatever we're distracted by will become what we're devoted to if we're not careful. Okay, so whatever we're distracted by will become what we're devoted to if we're not careful. So what happens when we get distracted by anything other than the one thing, knowing Jesus, sitting at His feet, loving Him, knowing Him, learning about Him, trusting Him, submitting ourselves to Him. Well, let's read in verse 40. I'm going to throw it back up on the screen. But Martha was uh, distracted with much serving, and she went up to him. So she goes up to Jesus, the one called Messiah, and these are the words out of her mouth. Lord, do you not care? The first thing to go when we live a distracted life is our understanding of the character of God. The first thing that went for Martha as she's busy serving and sweeping and cleaning and cooking and cleaning and, and getting everything ready for Jesus and she looks over and he's not noticing and he's still t- talking to Mary and he's still preaching to the ones at his feet and frustration builds and anger builds and she walks over to him and she says, do you not care about me? When we get distracted and become devoted to our distraction, the first thing that we lose is our understanding of the character of God. I mean, let's contextualize this for a second. What would that look like in your life? What would that look like in my life? God, I have been serving you. I went on a mission trip. I, I, I go to church every Sunday, even when I don't want to be. I don't even like life group, and I go. And discipleship is confusing, and I, I haven't figured that thing out yet, but I'm trying, and I'm going, and, I, and, I, and I'm saying no to the world and all the fun stuff that I, they think that I would want to do, and I'm saying no, and I, all this stuff. And Lord, where are you? Do you not see everything I'm doing? Why don't I have a boyfriend or a girlfriend yet? Why do, I have to, why do I show up at church when I see everyone and they're so happy and they're loving you and, and, they, and they're worshiping you and they're passionate and they love you? Why are you with them and not me? Why, did that, why didn't I get the promotion? Why didn't I get, why, didn't, why doesn't my life look like what I thought it would look like? Do you not care about my troubles and my pain? Do you not care about my marriage or my kids? Do you not see everything I'm doing? The first thing to go. When we get wrapped up in distraction, we get wrapped up in performing, is we start to, to question, does he actually really even care? I, I, I'm just over here performing, hoping that one day I'll perform well enough that he'll get off the couch and he'll leave Mary and he'll come over with me and he'll put his arm around me and he'll say, okay, you've served enough. Now I'll be with you. It's a ridiculous thought to hear in this kind of setting. But how many of us are living under that weight? I just hope I'm performing well enough. I hope I'm doing enough, and I don't know when, but someday if I keep performing well, God's going to show up. And he'll, he'll deem my performance worthy, and he'll bless me with all the honor and the blessings and all the things. 
Can I just sidebar for a second? Do I have time? Yeah, I'll do it. Okay. I just want to inspire a warning shot for us as a church. Jesus is not the way to self-actualization. Church is not the way to self-actualization. I think a lot of us are convinced that if I follow Jesus, if I do the right things, I, I, I check all the boxes, I will become the best version of myself, and I will be blessed, and I'll have, and I'll, and I'll have the, the good life that I think I deserve. I know this sounds crazy, but it, it, th- this, this mindset has crept into the church for a long time. I'm going to use church, I'm going to use following Jesus to try and get blessings and hope if I live well enough, I'm going to get the job and the spouse and the house and the money. And I'm going to look back when I'm old and I'm going to have all the money, I'm going to have all the pleasures, I'm going to have all the things I ever wanted and I'm going to think I've spiritually made it and this is all because I have done all the right things with God. I'm, I'm good with the big guy. That's why I have the house. That's why I have the wife. That's why I have the job. I, I, I don't see that in Scripture. Jesus promises, that, promises us that we'll have trouble. He promises that he'll be with us. He challenges us to pick up our cross daily and follow him. If this thing, if following Jesus is like, I want the easy life, I want the good life, and I think Jesus is the way to do it, I think we're, we're missing it here. And I, what I'm doing is I, I don't want any of us I don't want any one of you to come to me in 10 years and be like, why isn't my life better? I've been doing all the things. This is like the moment that I'll point, were you there that Sunday 10 years ago? You should listen to the podcast. Jesus doesn't promise you the best job, the most money, the best car. He doesn't promise you that you'll have an easy life. He promises that he'll be with you. And actually that that will be enough. Okay. That was, a, that was a okay time spent there. Okay. We, when we mistake, like Martha, we mistake our busyness for holiness. And, and, and I just have to say, I don't think heaven makes the same mistake. The more things you do does not make you holy. It doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't make you better than anyone else. Busyness does not equal fruitfulness. Busyness does not equal holiness. Busyness is just going to wear you out. Unless you're being obedient. That's another sermon. Okay, let's keep going. What's the next thing to go if we live a life devoted to our distraction? Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. The next thing to go if we live a life of performance and distraction is believing the best in each other. Comparison gets in. I don't even feel like I need to, this is like, this sermon preaches itself. When we are distracted and trying to do all the things for God instead of knowing Him, that's called living a performance-driven life. When you, and let's just drop the charade, we all, ha, we all face this. Not one person in this room does not feel the need or the urge or the desire to perform. It's in our human nature. And when we think we can perform well enough for God to earn His presence and to earn His, his stamp of approval, what that leads is to us looking around and, ju- and comparing and saying, who am I performing better than and who's performing better than me? 
And she looks over and she sees Mary, her sister, sitting, talking to Jesus. She sees Mary in the presence of Jesus, just sitting there, just just taking notes, just journaling, just on her face, just with, with, with worship in the corner, just, I'm, I'm kidding, but, but she's just in the moment with Jesus. And Martha looks and says, hey, that spot at his feet has to be earned. Jesus, tell her to come help me. She hasn't earned the right to sit at your feet. And we do that to each other. We're like, like wait a second. That dude barely comes to church. Why does he get that blood? Why does he, what's with him and his life? And why does his life look so good? Oh, I know, I know I pray more than her. Why is she up here leading worship? Why is that person a leader? I can lead better than him. You kidding me? I've read the Bible more times through and through than that guy. Why does he get to lead? And why does that person get to be close? And comparison robs us. Because what it robs us of is knowing that we can't earn the presence of God. Martha looks at Mary and she's like, you've got to earn the presence. Mary doesn't even hear her because she's like, no. I can't even hear that because I'm in the presence. We cannot earn the presence of God by our performance. That's kind of the message of the gospel. We receive it. We accept it. And for most of us, we just got to become more aware of it. But we can't earn it. So the first thing to go is our understanding of the character of God. And the next thing to go is our ability to believe the best in one another. We get robbed by comparison. Let's keep going. Verse 41. This is Jesus talking to Martha. Martha, Martha. Just that right there is like the grace of God. You know, like it, 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 if I look at Eleanor and I'm like, Eleanor, that's one thing. I, that conversation can go in a lot of different ways. <laughs> but if I, I read this right, I'm reading like, Eleanor, Eleanor, calm down for a sec. Martha, calm down. You are anxious and troubled about many things. You think you're anxious about Mary? You're actually anxious because you're living a performance-driven life. You're not anxious about what you think you are. You're anxious and you're troubled about many things. Your heart is racked with anxiety. If there's any other performers in the room, that should hit you right here. Because when you're like, when your life is based on how well you can perform, and you never know when you wake up the next morning if you did enough. I hope I did enough. I hope I'm doing enough. I hope I'm performing well enough. Troubled and, and, and with, with many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, I've said one thing a couple times. Anyone, if anyone uh, is thinking that that's on purpose, you're right. Because I, I think what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's looking at Martha. He's looking at all of us. And he's reminding Martha of a psalm that she would have probably memorized as a kid. And it's King David. In Psalm 27, he says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. 
That's the one thing. I think that might be the one thing Jesus is reminding Martha. And what a theological powerhouse moment this is for Jesus. Check this out. So, so one thing have David is saying back, so this, David, hasn't, David never got to meet Jesus. David's pre-Jesus. He's looking forward to the coming of the, of the Lord one day. And he's singing. He's writing songs or poems or the same thing maybe. And, um, and he says, one thing that I want from the Lord. This is the one thing that I'm going to seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord. At that time, the house in the presence of the Lord was a physical place. It was a temple. And so David's writing a song, and he says, the one thing I want with my life, the one thing is that I, that I could be in the temple and just be in the presence of God, that I would just know him all the days of my life, that I would just gaze upon the beauty. Picture Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, just gazing at the beauty of Jesus and the power and the authority and the person of Jesus. And David says, and to inquire in his temple, to ask questions, to ask him, where are you? And and to bring the hard stuff to him. And Jesus is saying, Martha, Mary, and to everyone else that can hear, I fulfilled this. There's no, in a few days, there's not going to be a physical temple anymore. I'm going to be the house of the Lord. Me and my presence. I'm going to be the temple. One thing have I asked that I would seek after. To dwell in the house. To dwell with Jesus. To dwell in the presence of God. To gaze upon His beauty. He's fulfilling the song and the cry of David and of the, the people of the Old Testament that just said, I just want to know him. I just want to know God. I just want to be in his presence. That's the one thing. That's the one thing. I want to wrap up and look at Mary for a second. This whole time, she's just been sitting at the feet of Jesus. So let's give her something else to do for a moment. And let's look at that context for a second. Mary is sitting at the, at the feet. She's a woman Sitting at the feet of Jesus. So Jesus is revolutionary right here. That is the posture of a disciple. That which in the patriarchal society of then, and if we're honest, the patriarchal society of today would say is not okay. Women weren't allowed to sit at the feet of the teacher and the prophet. That, wasn't, that was a station reserved for men. And Jesus is clearly flipping the tables once again. He's, wor- he's working within a patriarchal society. He's not affirming it. That's another teaching. Okay. I keep saying that. Um, okay. So here we go. She's at the feet of Jesus, which is a posture of submission, of, of faith, of trust, and of ready and eager to learn. Anyone else know where we find Mary the next two times in Scripture? We find her at the feet of Jesus. Put up John 11, 31, 32. When the Jews were, uh, so here's what's happened here. Uh, Mary and Martha had a brother. That brother died. They've sent for Jesus. They thought he was going to come save him before he died, but he didn't make it. He didn't come. When the Jews were uh, were with her, were with Mary in the house consoling her, They saw Mary rise quickly and go out, and they followed her, supposing that she was going to go to the tomb and weep. And now when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
Everyone thinks Mary is going to go grieve her brother at the tomb. But she sat at the feet of Jesus. There's something there that she's cultivated. And they all expect her to go do one thing. What does she do? She goes and she finds the place where Jesus is. She falls at his feet and she inquires in his temple. She's angry and she's sad and she's She's fallen on her face. She's submitted to the authority of Jesus. She's in a worshipful position. She's not toe-to-toe. She's, -to -toe. she's not screaming at him. She's not eye-to-eye -eye saying, you, you could have stopped this. Why didn't you? She gets on her, on her face, and she worships, and she cries. You could have done something, but you didn't. We've got to be willing to go to Jesus with the hard stuff. But we're not going to be willing to go to Jesus with the hard stuff if we haven't sat with him and gotten to know him. Mary's caught something here. If it was you or me, and we fully believe in who Jesus is and his power, and we're hearing stories of him healing and, and saving and casting out, and, and we say, Jesus, surely you're my friend. You know me. My brother's sick. Come quick. You can heal him. And he doesn't? And he comes walking up the next day, and your brother or your sister's dead. There's anger, and there's confusion, and there's pain. And Mary falls to her face at the feet of Jesus. Somehow, in the midst of her pain, some, she had cultivated something at the feet of Jesus where she knew. She knew that, that, that Jesus had the authority, that he can do what he will and he won't do what he won't do, and that even in her pain and her confusion, she submitted herself under his authority and said, and, and prostrated herself, said, I love you, I trust you, but you've got to answer this question. This is the story where Jesus grieves with her. The next time we find her, and this is where we're going to end, John 12, 3, another famous passage. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of their perfume. This is another set setting in which Jesus is in, in a home, and he's got his disciples all around him. Martha's there too. She's serving again. And, and, and Mary takes all the most expensive things she owns, she breaks the bottle and she starts to wash the feet of Jesus. It's actually, and Jesus actually says at the end of the chapter, she's actually preparing him for burial. Everyone, no one else in that room knew, knew Jesus like Mary did. Those disciples that saw the miracles, they were with him. They heard the teachings and the parables, but they hadn't caught it. Mary had caught something at the feet of Jesus. She understood who he was. She had fallen in love with him. She had learned to know who he was, and she knows what's about to happen. But here's the interesting thing. It comes full circle. The disciples get mad. And they say, hey, why did you break that? That was very expensive. We could have sold that and done what? Done a good thing. We could have given that to the poor. The disciples are looking at her, and they're confused, and they're angry, and they're, they're saying, we could have taken that money and done a good thing. And Mary's just busy with the best thing. She's just washing his feet. Jesus would rebuke the disciples a few minutes later and say, the poor you will always have with you, but I'm about to go away. See, this whole thing about good distracting us from the best 
the disciples right there in the moments and the days leading up to Jesus' death, they still don't get it. But Mary, Mary was like, I don't want what's good. You guys can, there's a, there's a million ways that we can serve the poor. And that's good. And we will. But Jesus is sitting right here. And I'm not going to miss him. I'm not going to miss him being distracted about all the things I could do for him and for his kingdom and all the people I could bring to him and all the people I could evangelize to and all the healings I could go do. I'm not going to, I, 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 need, I need to be with him. I think as we turn the page to go into this new season of life, as a church and as a people, we're invited once again to just be with Jesus. We can get distracted by a lot of things. We can get distracted by all the different ways we want to reach the city and all the different ministries that we want to start and all the people that we need to know. And those are all good things. But you and I, we're never going to we're never going to know Jesus and love him the way that we could if we are continually just trying to think about things we can go do for him. Some of us need to learn how to sit. And I know this isn't the most practical message, but here's my challenge for us all. It's just to, just, just to ask God, what am I distracted by? What's keeping me from knowing you? You want to know how to know him? Talk to him. Read the word. Worship him. Do that crazy religious thing where you set some time away in the morning. Unthinkable, right? How could we, how could we tell people we should do that so that we know Jesus? You're not going to know him through me. You're not going to know him through your family. You're not going to know him through your life group leader. You're going to know him through meeting with him, through, through, shutting, through shutting the door to your room and turning on worship and saying, I'm not leaving this room until I have a moment with the living God. I think some of us just need to get desperate. It's gotten too easy to do things for. It's really hard to just be with. But that's what we're invited to do. And that's where revival is going to come. And that's where transformation is going to come for us. If you're in the room tonight, and you've never spent time with Jesus because you've never met him and you don't know him. The Bible says today's the day. It's not a bunch of things we have to do for God to earn him. It's just to, to, to believe in him, to trust him, to make him Lord, to say you are who you say you are and you did what you said you did. You died on the cross and I know it's crazy in 2019 to believe that that actually happened. But I'm actually going to stand up here and say I believe it happened. And I believe it happened because he wanted to pave a way for you and I to know him and to live free and to have hope and to have life. And I know it sounds crazy. And I know you could go Google things and you could podcast and YouTube videos that would literally call anyone, including myself, that actually believe that ludicrous and crazy. That's why it's called faith. All it takes is saying, I actually believe you. I actually believe you love me enough to die for me to pave a way that you want to know me and that, you're, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. If you're in the room tonight and you don't know Jesus, I'm going to pray. And now this sounds like I'm just a, a thing we're doing. But the Bible talks about if we will just confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that He is Lord, that we can accept the sacrifice of the cross and we save. So pray with me. Everyone bow their heads. You can pray out loud. You can pray in your heart. It's not about a script. It's about...
you and Jesus. Jesus, I need you. And I love you. And I give you my life. I can't be the Lord of my own life anymore. I, I, I just can't do it. It's not working. Lord, would you, Jesus, would you be Lord? Would you rule and reign in my heart? I don't even know what it all looks like, and I know it's going to be a journey, but Jesus, I need you, and I want you, and I believe you are who you say you are, and that you did what you said you did, that you're the only way, truth, and life. Amen. Let's everybody stand up, and we're going to end the way we began. By just worshiping Jesus, by just, by just focusing our heart and our mind's attention on who He is. If our ministry leaders want to come down front, we do this thing called ministry time, and it sounds really crazy, and it sounds really weird maybe, but all it is is we want to be a, a place where people can respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. We want to be a family that believes with each other, prays for each other, puts our arm around each other. So if you're in the house tonight, and you just need more Jesus. You want to get rid of distractions. You want to know him better. You want to love him more. I'd encourage you to just come get some prayer. Grab someone next to you and just pray. If you're in the room and you need anything, you need healing, you need, you need favor, you need a miracle, you need life spoken into you and over you, I'd encourage you not to leave tonight without letting somebody pray with you and love on you. Jesus, thank you that you are the ultimate ultimate devotion. Thank you that we don't have to be distracted by good, that we can have what's best, and we can have what's, the, we can have what's best, and that is the one thing, and that's knowing you and loving you. We worship you tonight. Amen.